So, Bob, I have a bunch of emails here. Let's read them and answer. What do you say? I, I can read. All right. I'll read them for you so you don't have to read. <laughs> Listener Steph from Manila, the Philippines, wow. says, Is it okay to have secrets from your relationships? Is it healthy or is it dishonest? So, end of email. Pretty open-ended question. Yeah. But I think it's something we haven't talked about in a while, at least. Yeah. Secrets in relationships, like... Secrets like, I don't know, how many people you've had sex with or whether or not you fantasize about someone or you bought this thing online and it's not really within your budget, but you can pull back on this other area to make something work or you harbor resentments towards your partner that you just have resolved you're just never going to mention. Or, I don't know, you don't like his mom very much, but you never mention it because you're just worried about something bad happening. Are these secrets okay? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, um, it's sort of like if my, like there's some secrets that if my partner knew they'd be hurt and there's some secrets that my, if my partner knew they'd be injured. The injuries, I think that's probably, those are, those are one should be mindful about doing things that are injurious or potentially injurious to a partner. But, you know, you're not going to like everything about your partner. You're not going to see eye-eye about everything. I don't, I don't see any reason. I think honesty and full disclosure are not the same thing. What do you mean? Well, I can be basically honest with Colleen, right? But that doesn't mean I have to say everything that comes into my head or, um, um, I, Like talking about every, well, for, for me, talking about every annoyance. Oh my God. We never talk about anything else. Okay. Cause I, I'm irritable. So meaning that you get annoyed a lot yeah. with people or Colleen. Yeah. And if you voiced every instance or even a summary at the end of the day, that would be bad. It would, it would be all this headache and frustration. And for what? Right. Nothing. Right. So I don't I don't consider those secrets. I consider that more like being just dis, dis, discreet. Yeah. For me, if Stacy were annoyed with me periodically through the day, I would like her to curate that or select from those. I I wouldn't want her never to say anything, but I would want yeah. her to prioritize, I mm -hmm. guess, and and tell me those things. Or another thing is, I don't know, if she were fantasizing about having sex with someone else. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 intellectually, I understand that could happen. Sure. But I don't want to hear about it. No. I, um, I'm not saying that everyone is like that, but that's how I am anyway. Yeah. And, you know, while I'm on that topic, I could see myself getting used to that kind of talk, you know, if you just head into that area. You, you have to, you know, jump some hurdles to allow yourself to have what I might call some fantasy ethical non-monogamy, if you will, you know, and, uh, but you know, uh, we have a style of relationship where, uh, we, uh, don't ask, don't tell kind of stuff when yeah. it comes to things like that, which is, which is, you know, is that secret? And, and so it really depends on the kind of relationship you want to have. Yeah. And it, you know, delineating between what you're calling injuries versus hurt and predicting what the other person would 
really want you to disclose. Yeah. And maybe that. also talking with your partner about not, I don't know if you'd want to say secrets, but the kinds of things you select to uh, um, not mention or it, what would be the point, you know, like if uh, Stacy had a dream about having sex with someone or had a dream about drowning me you know, or something. Um, well, the second one I definitely would want to hear about, but it's like, what, what would be the purpose of telling someone about, yeah. or uh, maybe another, uh, I don't know why I just keep coming back to uh, sex. Yeah. Things. What's with you and sex? <laughs> but if, for example, we're walking down the street and, um, she's reminded or I'm reminded of some past before we even met each other sexual encounter. And, and it just sort of flashes through. Oh, I remember, I remember having sex with this person in this particular way. And, and it just sort of popped into my head. Uh, what would be the purpose of saying, Oh, you know, what just popped into my head. Right yeah. now, if we had the kind of relationship where that sort of disclosure, those sorts of disclosures are, um, normal then and i think we do kind of you know I, I don't i don't think we're those are off limits entirely but i think it's like well you know why risk triggering my partner to just have this random conversation starter like it's, it's not really that critical yeah. and and if it if it did rise to that like oh my god i really have to tell stacy about what just passed through my head then i would but yeah. <clears throat> um so yeah it 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 depends. And of course, the Internet discourse around this kind of stuff is just really ridiculous. There's a lot of uh, radical honesty sort of things. I think that people have a pretty online anyway. Um, when whenever because because when you bring it up, you're just like, is it OK to have secrets? In fact, in my in my field of marriage and family therapy, we often have a discussion around secrets because, you know, families and couples will come into us and we might be talking with them individually. And if they tell us a secret, the general dogma is no secrets. Yeah. Meaning that you immediately yeah. tell the other person, you don't want to be triangulated. You don't right. want secrets can theoretically ruin and sort of fester in systems. Yeah. And uh, disclosure is, uh, kind of again, I use the word dogma because it's sort of a blind faith that that's always going to be beneficial. Yeah. When, as we're talking, Bob and I right now, it's obvious. Like it, it depends. And so I find that the discourse in society and in my field is dogmatic around because when you say secrets, like well, secrets are bad, right? Yeah, and, right? And I don't want my partners and or family members to be harboring secrets. It feels. You always just want to know more information. You know, it's it's sort of like when you get cheated on, there's this compulsion. Like, I don't, I want to know every detail. Every detail. I want to know when. I right. want to know how. I want to know, you know, where did he put the fingers? Right. Did you orgasm? Right. Um, right. And it's like, I get it totally, but sure. it's, it's a potential harm to you to insert those images into your mind if you're trying to salvage the relationship, which... Or even just trying to salvage your own trust in humanity, like intellectually understanding cheating is happening and making decisions thereof. Okay, but to like insert all those 
movie reels into your mind can really rot your mind away, you know, of just that, that feeling, you know, a really good depiction of this is Tom Cruise in Eyes Wide Shut. He's walking down the street and he's thinking about Nicole Kidman's character. Have you seen Eyes Wide Shut? No. Oh, it's an interesting movie. The first time I saw it, I was like, huh? The more I think about it, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, Stanley Kubrick, blah, blah, blah. But Tom Cruise is, I can't remember exactly how he gets there, but he learns that his wife fantasized or did have sex with some other guy, and it is kind of rotting away in his head. He's like walking down the street, visualizing his wife having sex with this other guy, and it is slowly making him more and more angry and he's walking down the street like punching his own hand he's just like oh and it leads to him um, cheating on his wife i believe and it's it's just one of those things you know cheating and secrets and betrayal those these are real and we want to be very careful about not betraying our partners sure and and being you know because because this leads i guess the most quintessential example of this and bob what do you think is that say one night you get drunk and you cheat on Colleen and you wake up the next day and you just, you're racked with guilt and you're just like, Oh my God, like Mm -hmm. why, you know, I can see where this, how this happened. You go to therapy, you you talk with me about it and you're just like, what's going on. And you eventually land at this place of just like, I am an idiot. I don't know why I did that. I got too drunk or I let my feelings for Colleen get too complicated so that I felt like I needed to passive aggressively get back at her or I didn't, I should have just gone right to her and said, I'm really hurt about things that are happening lately. And I, and I've resolved it. And, um, but should I tell Colleen, what would you say? Well, me, me and Colleen already talked about this when we got started and we were of the same mind. If you cheat, I don't want to know, so lie your ass off. Oh, really? It, it is It is incumbent on you. You're the one who screwed up. You keep it to yourself. Take it to your grave. I don't want to know. Interesting. So this you've, is, you've explicitly established that. Yeah, we, that's mutual. We both feel the same way about it. Interesting. You owe me. I owe you absolute Because I can't unring the bell. I can't get that out of my head. Yeah. You know, once it's there, it's so. Why are you, why? Because most people would be like, wouldn't you want to know? No, I don't want to know. But if it happened, wouldn't you? I mean, if I find out, then yeah, I want to know. I'd rather just not know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I trust Colleen. She trusts me. I don't think either one of us is thinking the other person is cheating. So, you know, good. But if it did, say she had one daily and it's one night. It'd be awful. But if she came back to you and, you know, wrestled with the... um, Because usually cheating, in my experience, in fact, not usually, universally, comes from a place of pain for people. They're they're suffering. And the cheating is a distraction from that or running away from that or some kind of passive aggression towards your partner. Right. Some sort of you know, personality disorders getting acted out, um, desperation, please love me. Does anyone love me? All of that. Right. And it's not like, it's never a thing of, ha ha ha, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. And if your partner is struggling and suffering and they have, and, and the other thing I'll say is after cheating, 
universally people regret it. <laughs> you know, it's pretty awful for yeah. people. You know, I will say that there are times when I've worked with people who are seemingly like very much in love with their, with their, um, you know, other person. Right. And, but they don't want to end their relationship. So I, I won't paint them all in one, but in terms of like these one night standy sort of, yeah. or one month emotional texting back and forth, it's usually, just born out of a ton of suffering. But anyway, how many couples percentage wise do you think have an arrangement like you and Colleen? I have no idea. What I would you, what I, was I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, 10%. No, I would say 0.01%. I'd really? say one out of 10,000 people don't want to know have explicitly a, a, a rule. Whoa. Well, yeah. Well, get with it folks. <laughs> you don't want to know. Well, I mean, I would say that a larger percentage should consider it for sure. Yeah. I don't think it's a universal thing. No. You know, some couples, I think, would say, well, hmm, I don't want it to happen. Right. But I would like to know yeah. so that I could at least know what the landscape is. And if that means we have to go through a lot of therapy to recovery, to cover, recover, then that's what it means. But... Yeah, I'd like to know. Because the other thing is, like, what if it's ongoing? Oh, yeah. No. we The agreement that we made is if you cheat, it ends. It will not go on, and you will take it to your grave. Yeah. If she were having a relationship, that, well, the agreement that we have is no relationship. If you stray, you will get back mm -hmm. in, you know, in check. Both, that, this not, I'm not saying this is what Colleen will do. No, no. We both have this agreement. You will not carry on a relationship that would be a real betrayal and you will take it to your grave uh, but if it were longer term then the disclosure is the rule yeah i think if if there's an affair like an ongoing thing. An ongoing thing yeah i don't think there's because there, that has some complications to it you know like is there sexual contact that you know like is there you know risk of you know you know, passing on a, a disease or whatever, um, that would be a crappy way to find out that your partner cheated on you is to, you know, find out. Oh. Well, plus, wouldn't you just want to know the landscape? You know, if someone has like three toes in someone else's door, if you will, you yeah. wouldn't, and it's ongoing yeah. for six months, like, wouldn't yeah. you want to know, like, oh, that's why I feel yeah. this and that? Yeah. 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 I, I think but if, if it was a one night thing, a one night or, thing, then just you will lie, you will stuff it, you will work on it, and yeah. you will because because the thing is is we the the reason we we came to this um, agreement, we, the reason we both have this attitude is because it's sort of like when you disclose, who are you helping? Like you feel mm -hmm. guilty, and now your partner has this crap in their mind that they can't. Uh, it's like a bell can't be unrung, and for what? For right. what? Yeah. What's, what's the, what's the belt? How, who wins? Right. Like, like I don't, if that were, if I'm on the receiving end of that, I do not win. Right. I, okay. Yeah, I know it. And then I have all the things that people have, which is, I want to know every damn detail, which I know is more bells that can't be unrung. And so best left, left, uh, ignorance isn't bliss, but it beats knowledge. Um, uh, but I mean, I would have the same impulses. Uh, to want to know, and I might actually seek it out because that's a hard pitch to lay off. Um, uh, there's certain things I would want to know, like how are you hiding it? 
what's that access point here? What's the plan for, you know, relapse prevention? Mm-hmm. Who is the person and how are we going to make sure they go away? Like I imagine what I would want is for her and me to um, meet that person and let them know that we're working on our relationship and they're not welcome mm-hmm. and they need to back off mm-hmm. and let us work on it. I got that out of a training with that. You know that guy, Barry McCarthy? You know mm-hmm. that guy? Oh, he's a sex therapy guy. I really like him. Good guy. Um, I he, he talks about that as relapse. Actually, what he talks about is he tells a story about um, someone had an ongoing affair with somebody from the church and she wanted to keep her marriage and ended the affair and her husband and her took the guy out to lunch and sat with him and said, we need you to respect our boundary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a great, I'm not sure you need lunch, but yeah, a great uh, thing to do uh, would require a ton of differentiation oh, and maturity yeah. to, to carry out that I don't think most people it's possess. humiliating for that. That know. and for everyone involved. I mean, the other person has to stand up to what happened and, um, because that, that takes a lot like, wait, so the, the guy that I, the other, you know, the husband is taking me out to lunch and I've have to sit there like, no, you know, I don't want to do that. Like Great. it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily benefit that that guy, right? Yeah. The other guy. So people have to, in terms of a selfish benefit, you know, you'd have to have a pretty mature attitude about. Okay, well, I'm not enthusiastic about this meeting, but you know, I understand it, and so, and I care about these two people, and so I'm going to have to have that override my selfish need to avoid confrontation. I don't think that meeting needs to be longer than five minutes yeah but uh <laughs> you know uh, maybe it's all the reality tv i'm watching like uh, most people that i have a sense of yeah. like the average human being is just extreme you know the more i think i don't know if this is just me getting old or something <laughs> but i think baseline people are teenagers oh mm-hmm. like baseline mm-hmm. throughout their life we ne- most people never graduate from 16 years old the way that people like these these not only the cast members in these reality tv shows but the discourse around these people in the reality tv shows is that of a 16 year old not everyone of course Mm -hmm. but the the sort of general mainstream discussions and the way these things play out it is it is if i heard the behavior i'd be like oh that's a high schooler or a middle schooler not an adult who like rises to the occasion and says, look, this is what a mature, wise, well thought out, differentiated person should do, you know, and then they take that, you know, they have this thoughtful, goal oriented, um, altruistic uh, approach that takes in consideration other people's feelings, your own needs. I guess I and I think what I'm expressing is when I was young and maybe even my 20s. I had this impression like, well, when old people, they're wise, right? They like get things and they, they think things out and they, they've been around the block and they understand the difference between emotions and, you know, they can, they can sort of sift through it all in, in the end. But I find that like, and I don't know if it's, if we've regressed as a society, (laughs) 
<laughs> which sounds like such an old thing to say, you know, that our society's becoming more childish or something. Or we've always been this way. I suspect we've always been this way because that's okay. usually the case. But there's just a lot of need for a differentiated maturity and the things you're talking about right now that you and Colleen have worked out and the recommendations and what you would do if there was yeah. a, another, another woman or another man right. that you would meet with them. And I could absolutely see you and Colleen pulling that off, you know, and you're just sort of surprised that, you know, most people would have a hard time with that. And I'm just like, I don't know what, how, what sort of different world we live in, but the, my sense is that I don't, I don't know if hardly anyone would be able to handle to find three people that would be able to do that kind of meeting and do it well, the way you and Colleen and someone else would do it. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just, I don't know if you I'm imagine that's not rare. Likely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, let's take a break. Actually, let's take a break, Bob. Yeah. If we get back, let's actually answer some patron emails, but cause we only got to one. I'm not even sure we did the one that <laughs> no, we did the, the, the secrets. And then, when we get back, it's only going to be for patrons only. So oh. if you want to listen to the rest of this, you have to become a patron of the podcast. Go to patreon.com or go to the app, and you'll hear us talk about emails. And stuff. George, become a patron. You can listen to the rest because we're going to talk about you. All right, we're back from the break. I thought I'd do an OPP, which is an old patron praise. Ah. These, these people became patrons of the podcast in April of 2019. Wow. And have stayed patrons the entire time. So not only did they become a patron, but they stayed a patron. We have Vivi from Sweden, wow. who's an annual patron, by the way. We have Amy from London. We have B from God Knows Where. We have Lori from Seattle. We have David from Redondo Beach, California. We have Miranda from Friday Harbor. That's interesting. Friday Harbor. Because Friday Harbor doesn't have very many people that live there, right? It's usually a vacation spot. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing. I mean, let me look up the the population of Friday Harbor. Popu it's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it's like three thousand people. I've never been there. It's it's nice. Yeah. Have I, you I, been to any of those? I've been to Orcus. Yeah, it's similar. Yeah. Yeah, twenty four hundred. Wow, that was very close. So one out of twenty four hundred people is a podcast patron from April of two thousand nineteen. We have Chelsea from Dallas. We have Ash from Toronto. We have Junie. Oh, good old Junie, who is an upper tier patron from Australia. She has a YouTube channel in which she, in a very calming and entertaining way, makes um, uh, scrapbooks. And they're really inventive scrapbooks. Wow. Yeah. It inspires you to like make your own. It's like a journal scrapbook where you, you know, you make a book about your cat, for example. And. You get pictures and you print them out and then you get little stickers and th and you go another page and it it I'm not describing it well but but it's actually it's, even if you're not interested in making those kinds of books it's a great YouTube channel she does lives and stuff. Uh, Bettina from uh, Canada, Nancy oh good old Nancy from Bonnie Lake you know wow. Bonnie Lake right? Mm -hmm. Nancy's an annual patron. And a frequent communicator to the podcast, at least maybe not so much recently, but in the in the past. Manu from Germany, I believe. Uh, Steve from California. Michael from Phoenix. Lynn from God Knows Where. Kim from God Knows Where. Minette from God Knows Where. 
Anne-Marie from God Knows Where, and the Rose System, which I'm guessing is just another, was it like a Patreon channel from British Columbia. Huh? Have you heard of Mission, British Columbia? Yeah. It must be a smaller town up there. Anyway, so thank you all for becoming patrons and staying patrons this this whole time. It's super cool of you. So let's go on to anonymous listener says, how well should therapists remember what you told them? How well should a good, decent therapist remember what you tell them? How often should you expect to repeat yourself with a good therapist? I've noticed a lot of my therapists will ask me the same question session to session, and it's frustrating, but I also understand that they have a lot of clients, and it's hard to remember things, especially in the first few sessions. What is reasonable to expect, Bob? I don't know how to answer that because it's hard to measure or quantify. I think having a good memory is probably really important for continuity's sake, and also because it's hard to feel cared for if somebody's not um, holding space in their memory for the things that you say. So what this person is saying that they get stung by their therapist asking them the same questions repeatedly makes sense to me. By the way, I think you should probably talk about that with your therapist. Um, I could imagine, I could imagine what, how therapy might stall if you don't get a chance to talk about that. Um, I'm 54 and my memory is significantly worse than it was five years ago. And I anticipate that that's likely to continue on to some degree or other. And I, I, what I do is I take notes and then I refer to my note to kind of refresh my memory before I have each, each session. Um, it's really funny though, cause sometimes I'll read the note that I have right before the session and then I'll sit with my, usually it's a couple and I'll say, so I was looking at your note and then I can't remember what the hell I just looked at just that second. So I usually grab the chart and pull it out and look, look again. Mostly what I do is write down things people say. So, um, so, uh, but I think my memory is good enough that, uh, I can maintain enough continuity to, um, you know, have it go well. Yeah. I think this is a, as you were talking, I'm, reminded of just how complicated this is at first i had a pretty simplistic response to this but i think it's it's much more complicated because you know especially i think there are different zones of quote-unquote forgetfulness like Hmm. right now i have a lot of uh, long-term clients Mm -hmm. people i've been seeing for years and years and there are times when they'll they'll have to remind me of something and we will have talked about it in the past they'll Mm -hmm. be like oh well you remember, you know, I was telling you about this one thing and I'll be like, mm, no, or they'll, or they'll start talking about their brother or something that they don't usually talk about. And I'll have this vague sense that we talked about their brother and maybe something kind of significant, Yeah. but we talked about it seven years ago yeah. and, and I have no memory of any of it. Yeah. And, but they do, yeah. you know, the client remembers, sure. absolutely. We talked about mm-hmm. this and this and this, and mm-hmm. you said that. And I'm like, I don't remember any of that. Yeah. So I think that most clients, if if not all of my current clients anyway, have a sense of what is fair to expect your therapist to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah. think our clients understand like, well, he probably doesn't remember this random detail that I told him five right. years ago, and I, and I don't care that he forgot that detail. He's, he tracks enough of my life right. that I, I, and he seems to 
understand me and the common things we talk about, but in terms of the random details. So I think that there's that aspect. I also think that, you know, as we, as I say this out loud, I think I could probably put a little bit more effort into taking notes even, you know, later on in, in the therapeutic relationship to kind of take note of certain, cause I'm guessing there are certain things that kind of repeatedly come up with even my current clients that mm-hmm. I have a tendency to kind of vacate from my brain and would benefit, um, not only clinically to f- having some notes about that, that I review, but also to make my clients feel like I'm paying attention, you know, and yeah. I, I'm always paying attention, but it's, Again, when you ha- especially when you have like a full load of clients, like just imagine thirty hours of talking. Like by the end of the day, even you've probably purged ninety nine point nine percent of everything you've heard. You know, your brain just and and actually along these lines, I found that um, I think there are two factors working against us that are later career. One is is that clients aren't as novel to us. Like the clients that oh, I remember sure. the best are my very first clients. Oh. And because mm-hmm. they were the first clients, it's like the first time I drove a car, I remember it because it was the first time I'd ever driven a car. Damn, I can't remember the first Well, time. I can remember like certain instances, yeah. you know, like I won't go into detail, but okay. I, can, I can remember certain trips that yeah. I took early on when I first got my license. Right. Whereas I can't remember driving the car what I did last week. Yeah. Why? Because it's not novel. It's not novel. So later career therapists were, were just not, um, so it's not novel. And then the other thing is I, I find that I crossed a Rubicon, I don't know, 10 years ago where my brain had just filled up with too many details. Of, it's like I had a file cabinet in my brain for clients and you can't take stuff out. Like once the memory is encoded, like you can't selectively forget something, you know, it just becomes a part of your memory. And it just, I remember there was this point about maybe seven years into my career where I remember kind of marveling at how much I remembered. You know, I remembered every single client. I had all these details. And I remember at a certain point, like, I couldn't even remember the clients that I worked with earlier that day. And I remember Mm -hmm. there was a sharp contrast. And and I wasn't, I, I didn't have general memory problems. It was just... So I think that's another aspect of it. It's just like there's too many details that are there's humanly possible. You just can't really retain as easily as you could early relationship. So I think that the other thing I'll say is that I think it's incredibly important that therapists actually really try to prove that they're paying attention and oh, remember. Yeah. And I think it's as anonymous listener is saying, I think it's particularly important at the beginning of the relationship. And and because I found that the the first few sessions i had a really hard time remembering these people because i didn't know them that well yet so in the first few sessions i always take a lot of notes and just before they walk in my office i review the notes and that would help a lot obviously but once we get into the swing of things you know a few months in like it's already kind of encoded in my long term and i don't i don't need to take notes or look at notes. But now that I'm talking, I'm thinking, well, maybe I should have like a, a later relationship note taking, um, practice to kind of keep up on certain details, you know, anyway. But the other thing is, is that how do we as therapists respond to our clients when we forget? And I think that's another important thing. uh So say, 
uh, it's alerted in session that you as a therapist have forgotten something kind of key. And uh, I think it's important to say like, you know what? I'm so sorry about this, but I don't remember the name of your spouse or whatever that, you know, can you tell me, I know I asked you this before, but can so just showing that, you know, you recognize that the, um, how much it would concern or hurt the client by the fact that you're forgetting some details, you know? So, uh, how do you respond to forgetfulness? I think is also important. Humility and non-defensiveness. Yeah. Dog agrees. Uh, Patron Jolene says, would you ever give some thoughts on my favorite show of all time, Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist? That's Jolene's favorite show. Did you ever see that show, Dr. Katz? Do you know of it? Yes. Yeah. It's like, it has um, that guy from Archer and Bob's Burgers. Do you know him? John something. I don't know his name. Yeah. Um, he was, I think, Dr. Katz's son. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, anyway. But yeah, it's like a rough-drawn kind of adult humor. And Dr. Katz was a therapist. Yeah, Dr. Katz. Who who played Dr. Katz? I forget. Oh, okay. I mm-hmm. don't know. Was it was it someone famous? Yeah, it was somebody. Uh, I, I, as soon as... as soon Dr. As Katz voice actors. Uh, well, his name's Jonathan Katz. Oh. And then... John Benjamin, H. John Benjamin, was the son, I believe. And, uh, oh, Sarah Silverman's sister was on there as well, um, along with... And Dave Chappelle was actually one of the characters. Yeah. Um, Late 90s. So, Jolene says, I've recently decided to return to school at 40, and and I'm considering a career in therapy. Thanks for the encouragement I've been receiving for years from you, Bob, and Birdo, and everyone else on the podcast. So what do I think about Dr. Katz? Um, it was on TV at a time when I did not have cable or a TV. <laughs> there's a there's a blackout zone for me and like popular shows that I just, one, didn't have access to really, and two, didn't care to. And there wasn't really an internet, you know, YouTube access to that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And no. so... Uh, Dr. Katz is one of those things that I knew about, but just literally Never. didn't have the ability yeah. to watch. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have, I really don't have, uh, but I will say I've heard clips that I find to be extremely delightful, um, extremely dry humor. And um, yeah, but I, I can't tell you much more than that. Patron Alexander from Norway says, my question to you is about planning and building a meaningful career as a psychologist. I'm soon finished with a master's in clinical psych and will begin work as a therapist. However, for the future, I could see myself teaching. Besides possibly therapy and teaching, it would also be nice to have other creative areas of work. In other words, being able to have a work week with varied activities that bring value in different ways, very much like you have been able to do, along with other figures like Irvin Yalom. How did you go about to build this path for yourself do you consider a PhD a must in order to teach? If so, do you also do research besides your clinical practice teaching and podcast? What general advice would you give for building a varied and personally meaningful career in psychology? And if email before I go off on this, Bob, what do you think? I was just going to say I defer. <laughs> well, do you like your career? Yeah. How did you build it? How did you know, you know, 
of the options that were available to you, teaching, which you've done a bit of, um, supervising, getting a doctorate, how did you navigate those decisions? Oh, well, hell. When I moved to Pencil- uh, when I moved here from Pennsylvania in 1992, I met all these master's level master's level clinicians who were working in clinics, right? And honestly, God, I had the same thought about all of them, which is, did you guys all get kicked out of graduate school? Because where I'm from at the time, if you had a master's degree in psychology, it was because you got booted out of grad school and they gave you a terminal, they called it a terminal master's, which was, you know, something for the effort, right? But so, and you had to have either a PhD or uh, a degree in social work in order to practice as a therapist. They didn't have licensed counselors in Pennsylvania. Um, till, the way they do now. Yeah, till the late 90s. Uh, my mother, when she finished uh, graduate school in 97, couldn't get a license till I think, 99. Um, so uh, when I moved here, my goal was to live here a year and then go get a PhD or a PsyD somewhere. And I got turned down at the two schools I applied to, which turns out to be a blessing, because I started thinking about master's degree, because by then I had enough exposure Lots of folks here. <laughs> Everybody that I knew with a master's degree did not have a terminal master. There was just, you know, they went to an MA program or an MS program. And so, um, uh, but I got laid off a job and so then decided to go to graduate school. I mean, I kind of fell backwards into Did it. you ever consider getting a doctorate? Yeah, when I moved here. But besides that? No. It must have occurred to you at some point, like, should I get a doctorate? Yeah, I watched you, and I'm like, no way. Yeah. So why did you not get a doctorate? Because to do what I want to do, I don't need one. Yeah. I think a master's degree is a quick and dirty way to... Well, let me restate. I think the 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 rigor now is a lot higher than it was when we were students. Yeah. So I think back then it was a quick... It's not and, a lot higher, but it's higher. It's higher, yeah. yeah. Like our degree was around, I think, 60 credits, which is a quarter credits. Or maybe it was less than that, actually. Don't remember. Well, I do know how long it took. It took you six quarters. 18 months. 18 months. And at 15 credits a quarter, that's 30, 75. 75. It wasn't even that that many. Because it's an internship, right? 12, 12 credits a quarter. Uh, Right. And it's 12 credits a quarter, correct. So that's 72. Even though you can do 15, but. Um, 12 was full-time. Anyway, point is, is that full-time, full-time schooling plus, uh, sort of half-time schooling junior. It was full-time schooling for, for, for three quarters for nine months and then half-time schooling and internship for another nine months. That's correct. Today. Yeah. It's a lot more than that. Now that I contrast it with that today, it is probably two and a half years of full-time schooling and then a year of halftime plus internship. Oh, that's significantly more. Yeah, it's a lot more classes. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> so when I think about that, I'm like, and at the time, the marriage and family therapy program was harder than your program. And, and so ours was actually. You, you, you had to do two years. You couldn't yeah. do less. Right. Yeah. Well, plus, was, I got fired from my first internship, so that elongated things a little a bit. bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, you. I think this is good for people to hear, and I always say this thing, but because people, you know, know I have a doctorate. But the thing is, is that if you want to be a clinician, a yeah. therapist, then getting a doctorate is 
pointless unless you're, you know, you just really love school and and debt, by the way. I mean, it's not uncommon to graduate with a master's and or a doctorate and have literally like three to four hundred thousand dollars debt um, or at least two hundred thousand. I mean, that is a S ton of money. What What are the kids kids? What are the people now? Given what it takes and how expensive school, how expensive? How, how does it cost? How much does it cost? Well, a master's degree, I believe, is sixty thousand, something like that. I'm guessing that's double what we paid. Is it? And more than double. And uh, but a doctorate is like a hundred and fifty, hundred hundred and thirty, maybe. Wow. Um, that includes a master's, of course, and that's just tuition. I'm not talking about yeah, books. Yeah. No, I'm not right. talking about living, living expenses. expenses. I'm just talking about pure tuition right because if you're going to go full-time school it's hard to work full-time yeah and then when you're an internship it's really hard to work oh, full-time my God. Yeah. and most internships don't pay you much no. at all if at all yeah. yeah so you it's not you know i i know students who are graduating with their masters with three hundred thousand dollars three hundred thousand dollars in debt and wow it's um so if the other thing i'll say is that People think of doctorate-level therapists as better therapists. It's not true. Doctorates are additional to masters that give you non-clinical-related education, typically. Not always. There's a lot of paths, a lot of different programs. But 99% of the time, if, for example, you are talking to a marriage and family therapist and they have a doctorate in marriage and family therapy... What happened was they got a master's in clinical work, and then their doctorate was on research and supervision or teaching on things that are slightly related, but really not core to your skills as a therapist. So if you want to be a good therapist, a master's is the top of the mountain, really, if you, you know. There's there's no difference between, you know, and of course, people with doctorates will argue with that because they wasted their money on a doctorate. But and, you know, you could conceivably spend more time studying. Maybe even your dissertation is on some clinical aspect or whatever, and that's fine. But it's not like people getting a master's degree. They stop learning. You can obviously dedicate yourself postgrad, and I always recommend that they do. Oh, if you don't. You will be swimming upstream. No. Yeah. People who don't continue like rigorously learning oh. after graduate are graduation are usually complete hacks as there. I, Bob, can I tell you something that I heard that just drove me bonkers? Because oh. it's not the first or the even the hundredth time I've heard this. I had a student tell me that she got an internship and she I hope that <laughs> it's okay that I say this. I mean I'm not gonna say any names, of course. But a student told me that she got an internship and she's really happy about it and she likes the supervisor. But the supervisor said, so the, my, you know, my student said, I asked the supervisor what kind of theoretical orientation she was because I, I wanted to know how, what kind of therapist, she, how she operated. Yeah. And according to her, so who knows what really happened, but what she told me was, well, my supervisor responded to that question by saying she doesn't follow a theoretical orientation. She just considers herself to be a nice person. Huh. What do you think about that? I, I think that probably the person is ignorant and can't talk about their theoretical orientation in you know an articulate way, but they have one. Right. But I think it's important to be able to say 
what it is to articulate for yourself what it is that you do. Yeah. Otherwise, if therapy is just being a nice person, you don't need a degree. Why do we even have degrees? Why did you take any classes on anything if it just requires you to be a nice person? Uh Now, I'm not claiming she's a bad therapist. I'm not claiming she's a bad supervisor. I don't know. But to say such a thing, if in any circumstance, particularly if you're a supervisor, is one of the most ignorant irresponsible things you could possibly say. It is like going to a physician and saying, you know, how do you decide what treatments to provide to your patients? And she's like, I'm just a nice person. I I just really care about people being healthy and not sick. And so I just sort of, I just essentially wing it. Yeah. You should run from a physician and a therapist who operates that way. Yeah. And particularly a supervisor. This is a teaching supervisor yeah. saying her, she's, she does not have a theoretical orientation. Yeah. She, rede- she rejects such notions. She's just a nice person. Yeah. This is not the first time I've heard this kind of bullshit. Yeah. And drives me bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> and... and you know, and people wonder why people think therapists are a joke. Like, it's because of people like this. Some people are jokes. Some people are a fucking joke. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, anyway, where did I get from there? But, um... How are we doing with this person's email? <laughs> well, so, in terms of, like, should you get a doctorate or not? Yeah. Don't think about doctorate versus master's. Think about what you want to do yeah. with your life. And if what you want to do with your life can be met through getting a master's, then I would recommend just getting a master's maybe later on thinking about getting a doctorate. Or if you want to get a doctorate and all fell one fell swoop, because sometimes that can be more convenient. Mm. Know that you're getting extra education and paying for it that you might not ever actually use, uh, which is fine. But you know, there's that. Okay. The other thing I'll say is that you're asking questions about you want to be a teacher. It is a lot easier to get a, a full-time gig as a professor if you have a doctorate. In yeah. fact, I, I think, I don't know anywhere that would hire you. Well, no, that's not true. But if you have a doctorate, you're much more viable to be hired, particularly as a full-time professor, even as a part-time. But if you just want to be a part, if you want to be a, a therapist who teaches on the weekends or on a Friday then having a master's is definitely achievable, especially if you're teaching at the master's level. Um, so there's that. You're also saying, you know, you, so you want varied activities. Uh, da, da, da. Uh, sounds like, you, you know, if you want to be a media person, you don't need a doctorate, obviously. You don't need any degree to be a media person. You can speak out about anything. But in terms of being taken more seriously, being a clinician, obviously, at the, at the least doctor, uh, at bachelor's level. There is something marketable about calling yourself Dr. So-and-so, <laughs> you know what I mean, to the public that sort of holds some kind of weight. Sure. We love a credential. Is that important enough to justify another $100,000 in four years of your life? Like, that's up to you to decide. Uh, the other thing you ask is... Uh, do you also do research besides your clinical practice? 
research is such a rare thing to do for for people in our field that I and I find that people think about research as prospective students way more than it than is proportional to reality. Like there's so many people who will be interviewing to the program or pre, you know, pre-masters and be like, you know, what about research? You know, should I do research? And I'm just like, one, research is very difficult to get published. So you got to be, you got to be gung-ho about research to like pursue that as a viable like thread in your career. It's a huge pain in the ass to, you can't just like casually do research. The other thing is like research often is done on your free time. You're, you're, you're not getting paid for it. You're just doing it because you want to do it. You know what I mean? Or it's a part of your clinical or it's a part of your academic responsibilities sometimes, you know? Um, I don't know. What am I saying? So research is uh, complicated. There's a lot of different ins and outs, but I find that it, so again, if, if you're dying to do research and you're really like, like, yes, that is my calling, then obviously look into what field you want to research. You're going to need a doctorate for that. You can't have a master's level and, and do anything research-wise uh, because of, you know, clout and, and respectability. Plus a doctorate, by definition, usually teaches you research methods and you actually do research as part of your dissertation. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but if you're a prospective student, think really hard about whether or not you, it's, it's your calling because it's such a pain in the butt to actually implement is what I'm saying. And even if you are dedicated to it, especially if you want to be a clinician and a teacher to do research on top of that, it's possible. And many do, you know, I have colleagues and including myself that will participate in research, but it's, um, I wouldn't focus on that unless it's really something you're dying to do. I would just sort of, you know, become a clinician, get a gig as a teacher and then start thinking about like, okay, what avenues of, of research might I be able to go down, you know, sort of cross that bridge when you get to it would be my recommendation. You can do that with a master's. You could be like a secondary author on something or a, an assistant of some kind. But then the other last question I'll address briefly, you know, the general advice I would I give to people who are building a, you know, a varied and personally, personally, personally meaningful career in psychology. Yeah. I highly recommend that you think in terms of the long term having a varied uh, activity set because I find that people when they finally get there this is what happened to me I fought really hard to get my private practice full time you know I finally achieved it and found that although I loved all my clients it was a little wearisome to just be seeing client after client after client so that's when I took a full time job at, at the university, I'd already been teaching, but I took a full-time job and then I cut back my practice and that, then that felt really good. You know, I was a full-time professor and then I had a small practice. So a really good kind of repertoire in a career, but you, you're not, this is, we're taking, we're talking 10 years into your career. We're not talking like right after graduation. So it's being, having a set of clients teaching because, you know, and whether it's, part-time or full-time supervising, which is a whole other 
you know, set of activities where you're actually supervising. So that's a that's a third job. You do those three things, and being a professor, if you're especially if you're full time, you're doing admin stuff and like university level things in, in addition to teaching. So to me, it's like I I when I got there, it felt really fun because I I would have like a day of clients, I would have a day of meetings at the university, I would have a couple days of teaching. And then a day of supervising. And like every day I was looking forward to every day because every day was so different from the next. You know, nothing felt like it was getting monotonous in any way. In addition, I was also podcasting occasionally back when I was in that kind of lifestyle. Um, and I would highly recommend that to anyone. And I, and I know a lot of people that do that kind of thing and they have, you know, pretty good time. You could add research in there as well. But it's pretty easy to achieve that that mix of clients, teaching, supervising, admin. You know, it's if you just slowly kind of build your career. You could also do CE trainings. You could participate in your um, professional organization. Um, you could write articles for, you know, um, psychotherapy networker. You know, that that's a pretty fun kind of jumble of activities that all kind of synergize together you know the more you work with clients it enhances your ability to teach which enhances your ability to supervise and enhances your ability to author little little things that you're publishing and um, i know a lot of people and then you might start a foundation you know a colleague of mine jennifer sampson started a, a foundation for hoarding disorder you know and did a lot of research in that area so there's a that's a pretty good mix you have to set your sights on it, though. You got to like really, you know, head in that direction. And given what I just said about full-time employment at a university, getting published in, in little things, getting a doctorate is probably necessary. All right, one more email. Anonymous listener, I had sex with my therapist. Mm. He groomed me over three years, had sex with me for a while, and then just dropped me abruptly. Mm. Knowing I have abandonment, domestic abuse, and sexual trauma histories, I was wondering if you have any professional insight into why he might do this to women. What traumas create this kind of person or behavior, etc.? People say that the why behind the abusive behavior doesn't matter, that he's just another psychopath who used me, but it matters to me as to why he did this. He never shared any trauma with me, and I'd appreciate your thoughts. It makes me feel very alone and ashamed as I don't know anyone else that has had this happen to them. Also, I, I am seeing a new therapist now and to process it, and I n know I made self-destructive choices here. Why did my therapist cultivate a sexual relationship over several years and then drop me suddenly? Bob, what do you think? I don't know. Um, they wanted something, I guess, is why they did it. I don't have more to say than that. I don't know why people do such a thing. One of the things that I value in life is... Uh, did I ever tell you about my violent blippies? Oh, yeah, I told you about my violent blippies, didn't I? Your intrusive thoughts about being violent with people? Yeah, yeah. yeah those. Yeah. Um, let's see, why, is that, why did that come to mind? Shoot, now that flew out of my head. I don't know why that came to mind. It did. Oh, so so um, um, I don't know why somebody would do that. Oh, yeah, now I remember why. The thing that I value in life, uh, um, mm, 
if it's not above all else, it's right there at the top, is that we respect the dignity and um, uh, vitality of other living creatures. Mm. So I don't want to do anything that actually gets in the way. Because as far as I know, all people get is a little bit of time and a little bit of volition to do stuff with their time. That's it. And then, you know, and then we pass on. So to get in the way of that for somebody else, I think that's the, that's the biggest theft you can actually do to somebody is Mm. take, take that kind of, take that away from them because they only get so much time. Mm. So, um, so what are you saying about the therapist or people that do this kind of thing? Therapists that do this kind of thing? I don't know what I'm saying. They shouldn't do it. They just should not do it. But I don't know why they do it. I guess they do it because it, it makes them feel good. Because they get something out of taking. Um, because, I don't know, maybe it feels powerful. Maybe it feels um, exciting. Or mm-hmm. um, I, don't, I don't know why people would do it. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's robbery. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to rob anybody. Yeah, of all the people on the planet that should understand that, it's robbery. It should be a therapist, obviously, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's hard to know and to blanketly identify even a set of quote-unquote traumas that would explain all therapists' exploitation sexually of their clients mm. is you know difficult. Common traumas are people have been sexually abused themselves, therapists, therapists who are, who have been just abused in general and have power problems and attachment problems. Often alcohol and drug abuse is Mm -hmm. a part of the equation. Mm -hmm. Um, But so let me go into some stats because I just want to remind people about this because I've done so many episodes. So Bob percent of counselors who report having had sex with their client. What do you think? 15. Uh, 15. Is that low? It's high. Oh. Report having had sex with their client. Report having sex. I don't, I don't know. 15. Like, so, so your, your general vibe is like one in eight therapists have had sex with one of their clients. Oh, that does sound awful, doesn't it? I mean, is that your, is that your. No, I don't of, think one in eight has done it. I, I have no idea about these stats. You're asking me. I'm just making wild guesses. Well, what, darts at a board. But you know a lot of therapists. Like, what what, what would be your general revision percentage-wise? What would you think? Well, I only know one that did. And how many therapists, you know, oh, do you know, know? And how many therapists do you think would not report that? Most wouldn't report. Um, that person didn't report, but I happen to know because I happen to know. Um, well, you know another one, our professor... Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you know two. I know two. Two out of, well, maybe I've met, what, three or four, 100. 500 therapists over yeah. the course of right. 30 years. Right. So that, that's generally what, you know, if you tack on a few more that uh, would report on a survey but not to you. It's about, well, one, it's hard to know because yeah. we require self-report and m- many are not reported. But right. research shows that it's about... Uh, 3% of male therapists mm. and about a half percent of female therapists. Wow. So a lot higher prevalence rate of male therapists, which shouldn't surprise us for a variety of reasons. Mm. But, you know, one out of, what is that? One out of 200 female therapists report 
having had sex with one of their clients, which I find to just be incredibly high. I mean, 3%. That really high. Yeah, that 3%. So that's, if you're at a conference and there's 200 female therapists, like one of them, one of them on average has had sex with one, has had sex with at least one of their clients. Ugh. In the same room, uh, if you had 200 male therapists, that, what was that? That's, be that'd be six. six. You'd have six of them would say, yep, I've had sex with one of my clients. Hmm. Um, Might pers- be more because this relying on self-report, right? Yeah, but probably not that much more, honestly. Okay. It's hard to know. Yeah. Um, you know, they try to engineer these surveys so it'll, because yeah. they know that it's hard for people to report. So they, right. you know, they spend a lot of time saying this right. is for research. You'll, it's anonymous. It's, it's no anonymous. one will ever, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, percentage of psychologists, this research is targeting psychologists indicate that their training was adequate with respect to the subject of erotic countertransference. What do you think? Five. Yeah. 9%. So hardly any most. And I'm, I'm guessing that's true for our field as well. Um, yeah, it's largely avoided and, or just immaturely discussed in class. Like this is very kind of avoidant or, you know, I'll hear supervisors just say like, well, that's inappropriate, you know, that kind of attitude. It's like, it's inappropriate to have erotic countertransference. What's wrong with you? And it's like, research shows that it happens. And when you just blanketly shame it, it actually causes more problems yeah. for the individual. Like, you have to acknowledge that humans are human, and they're going to human, you know? Um, according to a study, sexual impropriety was the second most common malpractice claim after treatment failure. Uh-huh. Another study found that 64% of clients who had sex with their therapist suffered from PTSD because of that afterwards. Oh. And that's PTSD. So Two-thirds. there's probably a lot of people in addition right. to that that have, you know, trauma reactivity that yeah, don't yeah. rise to the level of, P- I mean, PTSD is really particular, right? It is particular. Yeah. So uh, let's just say that the vast, vast majority of those people who have sex with their therapist have a, a lot of additional symptoms to what they were suffering from to begin with. Yeah. Um, so what research has found regarding the therapists who did, uh, have sex with their, with their clients, uh, here are the factors that they found. They're typically middle-aged men, which is interesting. So not, not young or older men, but middle-aged so I'm guessing that's like what? What's middle age? Like 35 to 55 kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, I guess that's middle. Um, they're involved in alcohol or substance abuse. Mm. They typically have interpersonal difficulties, meaning divorce or loneliness or something. Mm. They're often depressed. Mm-hmm. And they're often isolated in the professionally. You know, they're, oh, not, yeah. they're yeah. not seeking consultation or right. therapy they're themselves. Colleagues, yeah. So... Now, why would those? Why do you think those factors would be associated with having sex with your clients? Well, it's going to raise the level of can I get away with it? Okay. And also, if I'm depressed and abusing substances, and so disinhibiting my, you know, whatever, then yeah, and that's hard to do if you're not in a vacuum, right? Almost always, and I've and I've. I've worked with women who have had sex with their clients as well, mm. but I've seen, this is just anecdotal, but I've seen two profiles. One is someone who is, ex- the, the primary thing is they're lonely. Mm. They're in a, a state of constant loneliness. 
they're often going through a divorce, but not always. But, you know, they're just they they aren't getting any closeness, any intimacy sexually, you know, romantically attachment wise. And they're suffering. You know, they're just like, I'm alone and I'm struggling. You know, they might have, you know, sections of time where they do online dating or something and there might be glimpses of hope and then it all comes crashing down and they're back to the drawing board again and they're home and they're alone and they're like will I ever meet anyone and then they have their six or seven clients every day and one of them seems like a good partner to them you know and they go home and they're lonely and then they think about that client and they're like, if, you know, I, I've dated, you know, three dozen people on Tinder over the past couple of years and none of them have worked out. If this client, if this person wasn't my client and we met on Tinder or whatever, or at a church or at a work thing, I'm pretty sure we would have hit it off. You know, so these thoughts start going through their mind mm-hmm. because, you know, they do have some, I don't know vibe of compatibility with this with this person might be true on some level yeah might even be kind of true hard to know because a therapeutic relationship is just like completely different than yeah a dating relationship you know yeah and these thoughts start entering their mind and at first they're not they're not they don't really regard them they're just like well you know it's just kind of a thought that runs through their mind but but they're either secretly or semi-secretly in denial of this longing to see them again. You know, because the heart wants, you know, when it latches onto someone, and if you have nowhere else to latch onto, and all day long the only people that really sit with you and talk with you are your clients, and this client you have a vibe with, and you're, you know, you could see yourself being attracted to that person, and they seem to really like you, you know, they seem to be really into you as a therapist and you lack consultation and therapy and awareness and stuff like you, you start going down a road, you know? So I've seen that profile yeah. and that's a really comparable and, you know, depression can be involved. Sure. Um, alcoholism, all sorts of problems, divorce wise or whatever, maybe and financial problems sometimes probably lead somebody to the you know, rationalization of their gross behavior. Rationalization, but also desperation. I mean, you know, think about people who are lonely and particularly going through a divorce. I mean, it's a it's a crazy time for people. It is a rough time. Yeah. I don't have much sympathy for this. Why? Because you shouldn't exploit people. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't either. I mean, I, I find it to be a pretty obvious road to not go down yeah it's easy to avoid yeah pretty it's, easy, it's pretty to, easy avoid. to avoid yeah I don't, it's not yeah. uh but Who, who's the other who's the other profile the other profile is someone who's narcissistic oh predator well predator is one way to put it but okay. another way is it's just all kind of about them and they just really like this person and uh, yeah maybe psychopathic a little bit of so the the first profile that I mentioned, when when they're caught or when there's a consequence, they typically feel pretty bad about what they did. The people who, that I'm the second profile, and I've worked with people like this, they don't have remorse after afterwards. Yeah, 
they're just like, but we hit it off. And I'm like, but they were a client and you harmed them. And God knows like the damage you've done to this individual for the rest of their life. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 everything's fine. You know, there's this, there's this extreme level of, of denial yeah. and, um, focusing on themselves and yeah. a whole system set up in their personality that allowed the whole thing to begin and allowed it to persist and then made up excuses afterwards, you know, it allowed them to live with it very comfortably. Yeah. There's no, there's no remorse. They yeah. don't have any remorse and, um, and they get a ton of narcissistic supply from the, from the client, you know, cause the client, if when, oh, when yeah. they find a client that's, worshiping them you know they're like "Ooh, i like this feeling it feels much better than it does with my spouse or on tinder because this person like worships me like front to back right they they want they think i'm smart and they want more time with me they pay me to talk to me it it really lines up with narcissistic needs right did i ever tell you about my first sweetie back in college i don't i mean probably well she um she was the person you were slightly pining after when you were coming to the coming to Seattle. No, 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 no. Was no. that a different person? A different person. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, this is my very first sweetie back when I was in school who um who had a sexual relationship with one of the ministers in the church that she belonged to uh, back in her hometown. Yeah. And that continued for a year. And he groomed her from before she was of age. And uh, she told me a story once. She's like, yeah, well, we, we almost got caught, like me being there. We weren't having sex, but me being there. And so I had to hide in a closet. And then um, um, when she became of age, they began having a secret sexual relationship. And this guy was in his 40s. Gross. She was in her late teens. Anyways, um, when I met her, she told me about it. And she said, I want to tell you this thing, but I don't want you to react to it. I'm like, okay. So I listened, and I listened calmly to what she had to tell me. And it was in the past for her? Recent past. Very recent past. Yeah. Um, and she continued to be a member of that church. So when she went home to her hometown, you know, she'd go there and, um, and um, she'd see him. As friends at that point? Uh, I don't think so. I think there were the, the vestiges of their sexual relationship or whatever of his sexual exploitation of her is really the right way to put it. So one night, Saturday night, we're in bed sleeping. It's late and the phone rings and it's this motherfucker. And she talks to him. It was a brief conversation. And I think she felt, I know she felt uncomfortable because I was there and, um, um, she hung up and I got so fucking angry. Uh -huh. And when I think about it, really what it was is I was jealous because I was behaving according to script. And the script is don't freak out about this improper relationship. This, this uh, improper exploit, it's not relationship exploitation. Don't freak out about it. But I did. I got really, really angry and I'm like, who is this asshole? And what the hell? Blah, 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 what, blah. what do you mean you were jealous? Well, it felt like a threat. I mean, 11.30 at night on a Saturday, mm. and motherfuckers calling my girlfriend. So if it was, even if it was just a guy her age, you would have felt the same way? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I got angry, and I really, like, 
viscerally angry, really yeah. angry. I don't know if I left or whatever, but I was really angry about it. Yeah. And uh, later... Because it would have been more caring to you for her to not answer or to pick up the phone and go, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm with my boyfriend now. I can't talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Acknowledge, like she didn't say... I don't recall that, no. What? She didn't, she didn't acknowledge that I were there, I don't yeah. think. right. And I think she probably, I mean, we were both young. I think she felt just squeezed by all these factors. Totally. I mean, mean, it's a lot to handle. So later, um, um, I went to see her in her hometown and with a friend of my, a friend of ours. And the friend wanted to use the big monster pipe organ at the church because he was a musician. They are cool to play. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I imagined, you know, that big room with all those big, you know, anyways. So, um, the, she arranged through this asshole to, um, get my, get our friend access to the thing, but she didn't want to see this guy. So, um, I went in to pick him up and he was in this guy's office when I got there. Wait, so I'm losing track of who we're talking about. So my friend borrowed, borrowed the organ. Yeah. And then was waiting for us to pick him up in oh. this guy's office. Oh. The guy was there. Your friend was in the... The abusive... The... Jerk face Pedophile's office. Yeah. And you... She didn't want to go to get your friend, so you went to go get him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I... To pick, be clear, some people always say, you know, he might not be a pedophile. Okay. Yeah. I don't so, know what he is. Yes. Except... Except he... This was not an isolated... A criminal. Instance. He was a criminal. He definitely was that. <laughs> yeah. So when I got there, I felt really awkward, really uncomfortable. I didn't want to see the guy either, but, you know, no way she was going. Easier in. for you to see him than yeah, for her. Yeah, than for her. So we go in the office, and he introduces himself, and I shook his hand. Right. And I left, and I felt like crap. Yeah. Just awful. Like this asshole. And I'm shaking his hand, you know, like passive, you know, whatever. Yeah. So it was a small city where she lived. And later that day, we were going to a movie. And he was walking down the street and we were driving by and I'm like, let's flip him off. So I rolled the window down. My, my friend and my sweetie did not participate in the flipping off, but I did. I didn't look at him. I just flipped him off. Right. But she did. And she said, oh, he was steaming. He was so pissed. Oh. Right. And then about a year after that, she and I broke up. But um, uh, I, I, we got in touch somehow or other. I, and she said to me, I told other people about what was happening back then. And you were the only one that had even remotely appropriate response to it, which is to get angry. Wow. She told uh, another friend of ours who happened to be a minister at the the school I went to had a um, spiritual religious part of it. I don't really, I don't really get how that worked because I went to a state university, but um, uh, it did. And we had a good friend. I really liked that guy too. Really good guy, but he didn't react. Like, this is not appropriate. That was back in the late 80s. Why? I don't know. I mean, part of it is, I think, being a man, and you just don't understand yeah. the exploitation that can happen. Yeah, that's probably you know, part You don't of it. have those experiences necessarily. Certainly men do, but if you hadn't, or even if you had and hadn't been told that that's not okay, I think, I think being a man makes it harder sometimes to relate to victimization and yeah. so it just doesn't resonate with you. But it also could have been that 
your he was clergy and defensive against clergy or something i don't know i i have wondered that one yeah yeah because otherwise really i mean i really i don't i don't hang out with people that are members of churches that's just not my my sphere but he and i were good friends uh like good guy but anyways he didn't really have reaction our boss we we both had a job at school me and my sweetie our boss knew about it she didn't have nobody that she talked to had any reaction including her and there was a sort of a condoning of it. Yeah. And then she told me, he started grooming my sister, she said, when her sister was roughly the same age as oh whenever. Oh, my God. And then her, she and her, her mom and dad had split up. He was going after her mom. And then um, she found out through a different connection that he had been going after several women, who, most of whom were coming out of, you know, come, going through divorce. So they were... Um, I suppose for him, you know, easy prey or something. Um, and finally he got booted out of the church. Um, uh, and then the last she heard was he moved to another state. He's part of a smaller non-denominational thing because the church she was in was a really big national organization. So, and, uh, but still, you know, obviously still. Uh, yeah, okay. an age-old story, apparently, from all the reports, is a cover-up and yeah. move to a different church and start all over abusing. Yeah. Sweep it under the rug and blame the victims and re- uh, salvage the reputation of the of the church or the religion and don't do anything. Actually, I want to... Don't wanna, even fire the guy. Like, don't... Like, just don't even black... It seems like you should blacklist... You think you would be interested oh. in blacklisting people like that? Well, he got blacklisted from that particular denomination. Well, from every denomination. You know, they, why... They if you're a, a clearinghouse of, you know... But you know what I mean? I know. Listen, I agree. Yeah. That guy should not Obviously be Obviously criminally charged, and then when you do a background check on your minister, you're like, oh, well, you're a rapist, so I don't want to hire you. Yeah. Now that they could have done, I don't think they did. Right. I think they just did their own ecclesiastical court, I which kinda, is completely criminal and has been found to be negligent yeah. in, in in recent years. Right? Yeah, I imagine it's some of that has to do with the culture. Here's here's what I remember. I I want to restate something. After she hung up the phone, I freaked out, and what I said was, "Who the hell is this asshole?" fucking minister you were a kid and he's going you know blah 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 blah. inside my heart i was feeling like threatened and jealous but my actual response was what the hell is this yeah it shouldn't be um and i think that kind of started flipping a switch for her we we had that impact on one another because there were some things going on in my world and she flipped a switch for me yeah i think i think one of the best therapeutic things we can provide is to get angry yeah. when other people tell us things that they're not getting angry. That's outrage that are outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. I do that regularly with my clients yeah. and students. I'll just be like, wow. I mean, that makes me angry. Yeah. What you went through. Uh, that's a bunch of bullshit right there. You yeah. know, and people would be like, huh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that does make sense. <laughs> huh. You know, because, you know, I just try to imagine myself in the in their shoes, and I'm just like, that's some serious bullshit right there. Yeah, I got angry on the behalf of one of my clients last week. And you can be totally 
brainwashed and Stockholm syndromed into thinking this is normal or I deserved it or you know, I'm being treated. It's my fault or something. And it's yeah. like, no, it's a billion percent his fault. Yeah. You know, I think her original thinking was this was a consensual relationship. Right. And like this client, yeah, it's like, why would he do this to me? You know, why, yeah. why? I don't know if we have a gender on the therapist, but why, why would you do this? I, I was under the impression that the therapist was a man, but that might've just been my own. Uh, he groomed me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Monica Lewinsky said that about Bill Clinton. Yeah. She said at the time, I thought it was consensual. And only in reflection over years did I come to see what it really is. Yeah. So there's a number of things I'll recommend along those lines, um, not only just to learn about Monica Lewinsky, but also this kind of relationship to understand. Because from the outside, you can look at Lewinsky. She was an adult. You know, she was 22 or something. Yeah. But... When you understand Me Too and sexual harassment yeah. and uh, the power, power and all that stuff, then you understand that, you know, it's not it's not consensual in the sense that we would um, ex- hope for people, you know. And there's a new TV show that's a recreation, American Crime Story, I believe on FX. Um, it's on demand. You can watch it on cable. Uh-huh. Stacy and I are watching it. It's a recreation of the whole Linda Tripp, Monica oh, Lewinsky, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Bill Clinton right. thing. And it's it's interesting. Um, also, Paula Jones is in there. You know, there's a lot of oh, details right. of that whole story that um, I, I didn't really know. And to see it, 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 it illuminates that. Yes. I think the story probably doesn't go enough into the power difference and, yeah. and the, the Me Too aspect of it. And what that really means. Yeah. There, I can't remember. Is it a? It must have been a podcast I listened to with Monica Lewinsky. Um, the story of Monica. Let me let me look it up. Monica Lewinsky. She's amazing. Really. Podcast. Yeah, I mean now she's a public speaker. Slow burn. Yeah, slow burn. Uh, season two. Great podcast. It's kind of like serial. You know, they do different stories. Slow burn. Yeah. And it's. Um, it was very illuminating. I was just like, oh, you know, and so interesting that society at the time made her into a slut. Ugh. You know? Yeah. Totally like, oh, that slut, like, yeah. you know, sucked his pee when he, you know, <laughs> pee. I don't, I don't want to swear. Anyway, point is, is that um, this kind of exploitation happens and not only is it wrong and victim is victimizing, but th- the reactions of people around you just upholds the the abuse someone stabs you in the leg on the way to work no one's going to be like well you know you deserved it it happens yeah or are you sure you weren't asking for it yeah (laughs) what were you wearing right (laughs) you know so when it comes to this kind of thing it's no wonder that we have a problem with people coming forward because they just know that they're not going to be heard so you're saying all this stuff which is interesting and i don't think you've ever told me that story Mm-hmm or I have a vague memory of, of it, but not maybe in this detail, mm. to understand for this um, anonymous listener that what they went through was wrong. Definitely. And it makes us angry, and there's no excuse. And although, you know, like anonymous listener is saying, you know, people say that the why behind the abusive behavior doesn't matter. 
you know, that he's just a psychopath that used me. You don't know if he's a psychopath or not. It's hard, hard to say. And like I said, there were, in my views, there were two main umbrellas. There was the non-psychopathic, very lonely person that is extremely isolated and not only uh, romantically and relationally, but also professionally. And they just, they're just so desperate for closeness. They'll tell themselves anything. Anything, You know, it's similar to people who have been in five abusive relationships and then they're lonely and they, they go back to the previous abuser. You know, it's like they know better. They know they shouldn't go back to that person that beat them, for example. But they're just so lonely and just, you know, in despair that they, they, they just want one night of closeness with someone sure. and they'll, they'll, they'll do anything to get that, yeah. you know, cause we need that. So th- there's that category of therapist. And then there was the, you know, maybe there are somewhere on the psychopathic spectrum, but it was definitely like a narcissistic, yeah. but I want it kind of attitude and a complete impairment or lack of caring about how their behavior impacts other people, you know? So uh, to, Ask why anonymous listener. I think it's I think it's important. I think it's important to know the why. And I could absolutely not every victim needs to know, but I find for myself I've been victimized in various ways, not severely, but you know, some mild to moderate ways in my life. Mm-hmm. And understanding why is very therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not to let the person off the hook, but to make sense of it. Because I think until I, for me, until I understand why, until I have a good kind of solid. And, you know, there were some questions that I was mulling around literally for 20 years trying to figure out why. And it took me that long to answer that question sufficiently mm-hmm. to say, I feel like I finally have a conceptualization of that person and why they treated me that way after 20 years of trying to figure it out. And what did I, it do for you to. Right. To- so I think what it does is it. Even though I know intellectually it wasn't my fault, yeah, it really kind of drives that home when I have a good conceptualization. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, oh, right. I, I, I can see the gears turning in their personality that resulted in that behavior. Because uh-huh. without that, it's like, well, maybe it's my fault, or maybe it, I'm not good enough. Right. Or, you know, maybe yeah. I did a it, it doesn't sound intuitive. It's like, well, can't you just without a conceptualization, just say, well, I don't know why they did it, but I know it's not my fault. But I feel if, like it, it yeah. it's easier to resolve it's not my fault when I have a good conceptualization of why their personality was fucked up. If facts and logic were going to do it, that would have did it. But, yeah. but so you're talking about like visceral learning. You're talking about like a, a real sense of how this happened so that you could free yourself from that nagging, you know, part of you that's like, well, maybe not. Maybe yeah, yeah. and right. and maybe a person writing in needs needs that right. Totally worth pursuing. Yeah, I think um, it's I think it's normal to to want that. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it helps helps you to avoid the future. <laughs> never the client's fault. Yeah, never. Yeah, yeah. And clients will blame. It's like, well, you know, I encourage you too. And I'm like, that's your job as a client. You're supposed to have transference. You know, you're supposed to have 
displacements or explorations of your own feelings yep. in therapy. That's your job. You can be attracted to your therapist. You can ask, let's hang out afterwards. It's the therapist's job to hold the frame and to do their fucking job. And and use that as um, grist for the mill, as they say. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Talk about it. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's why we have basically one rule of therapy, which is don't have sex with your clients. Don't have sex with your clients. It's obvious. Doesn't matter what you're telling yourself. It's a bad idea. Yeah. And I, I still don't believe in these, like, you know, a year passes and then it's like street legal. Yeah. I get why they do. I, I don't actually do get why they do it. Everybody well, that I ever saw for therapy is still my client. Totally. In my heart. The one legit caveat is if you worked with say you worked with a family and you worked with them for like four sessions and you did pretty light work and you knew it was only going to be for four sessions and you worked with the teenager and one of the parents uh, and you kind of bonded and then like three years later you meet each other on tinder and, and they've divorced or whatever or you meet a client to talk about quitting smoking and that's all you work on. Or you meet a client and you're, you're a cognitive behavioral therapist and you worked on skills of some sort and you did that for two, two months and it wasn't in depth relationship with the client. It wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of, um, I don't know, like need for the relationship to be a certain way. Right. And then, after, you know, whatever the designated amount of time given your professional license passes yeah. and you start dating, you know, is there a risk there? Yeah. But could someone make an argument of sure. I've evaluated it and I, I don't think that this is going to harm them? Yeah. Then I would say, OK, you know, I, I could I could see that. But the kind of work you and I do. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. no way that a, th- a client would ever be in that category post termination. One session, you're my client. Yeah. And I am view you with that kind of care. Right. And why have that door open? Like, there's so many other fish in the sea. a lot of people out there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just don't. What do they say? Don't shit where you eat? (laughs) They do say that. Yeah. Does that apply? Yep. Okay. Shit somewhere else. Um... Shit on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Bob. Final word. Don't have sex with your client. You only get a little bit of time. Be kind to yourself. Don't ruin other people's lives with your time. Don't ruin other people's lives. Yeah. And take care of yourself because... Oh, Bob's pulling up his shirt. You deserve it. Oh, yeah. I see it. You're wearing wearing the merch. Yeah. Yeah. 